from the warm and sunny entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. Now, when I say warm and sunny entertainment capital of the world, I'm just teasing my guest, Sal Abenanti. Sal lives in Chicago where it's very cold this time of year and he's been digging out a lot of snow. And we talk about that. We talk about living and surviving in Chicago and how much he likes Las Vegas. He's been here, folks, and he's going to tell us why he likes the desert and why Las Vegas is great for family. But first, Sal is going to tell us about his first Kickstarter, The Hostage. This is based on his own experience when he went to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil when he was just 25 years old, a young college student back in 1986. This was a very personal story for Sal that changed his life. The Hostage tells the story of a group of street kids who are abandoned by society. They are dying every day from poverty and gang violence. The kids join together to summon a mystical spirit who will protect them and avenge the death of their friends. Sal both wrote and drew this graphic novel and it is completed and has met its funding goal as of this recording. And so now he's trying to reach all of his stretch goals and some have already been reached. We're going to talk in more detail about the story, about the children, about the religions in Rio de Janeiro, and then also talk about his love of comics, his love of Jack Kirby, growing up reading comics, trying to break into Marvel and just not getting in until now. Marvel number four, which came out in February, is his first published work for Marvel at last. All this and advice from Sal on how to keep a happy marriage. So please join me and welcome Sal Abenanti. Here now on Creator Talks. Sal, welcome to Creator Talks. Chris, thanks for having me. You have a project coming up, The Hostage, the story of a group of street kids who are abandoned by society. You know, I don't do a whole lot of Kickstars anymore, but there's three good reasons to look at this. One, you're a pro. Two, the book's complete. And three, you've already met your funding goal. So... Tell me about this story that has been on your mind for decades, since you traveled to Rio de Janeiro back in 1986. I went as the full of shit college kid. You know, I went with my roommate and, and we went to Rio and we thought, hey, you know, it was going to be samba and drinking and we were going to have a, a holiday. And it was that. But because I was living with somebody who, you know, I was living as somebody like the, who lived there, I wasn't there as a tourist. I got to experience Rio for what it was. There were things I saw that I couldn't unsee with the volume and level of how many homeless kids there were living in the streets. I mean, little kids. I don't mean like, you know, teenagers or you know, adults. I'm talking like all under the age of 10. Coming from the States, it was, you know, especially in the 80s, you know, it was the Reagan years. It was a tremendous culture shock. It was like a kick in the ass. It must have been heartbreaking to see little kids like that. I mean, it was. I came from, a, you know, a big Italian family and I just, it wasn't what I expected. I didn't expect it to have the effect on me that it had. And then as an artist, you know, my style was not meant for the big guys anyway. I went and tried to get in the front door of all those places and it just wasn't going to happen. So once you realize, hey, if you're going to do a project, you better do something personal. If you're going to really get any leverage creatively, I always felt that this was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do a story about these kids. You said you didn't go there as a tourist. You stayed with a family, right? Well, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine in college was from Rio. And I went there twice. And each time we were there, like, you know, a couple of months, I fell in love with the place. 
because, you know, I was in college at the time and then it was just a culture shock. Everything was different. I mean, there's not a lot of English spoken there. There's, there's a good deal of it now, but where I was, the neighborhood I was in, there wasn't a lot of English. And I just really felt that I was immersing myself into a different culture that I'd never experienced coming from Chicago. The background to a lot of this that's part of this story is the religion, which is kind of a melding pot there in Rio. You've got Catholicism, African religions, and local religions. How did you learn about that through your friend in college while you were living there? The interesting thing about it is is that a lot of religion uh, here in the States, it's not in your face. It's not on every street corner. It's not at the beach. And when you're in you know, different parts of Rio, you see these different religions practiced, whether it's different forms of voodoo, different forms of Umbanda, different forms uh, of these diff- all these crossover religions. Some of them have kind of meshed together and it, everything from these the religions from the indigenous tribes, from the Amazon to a lot of the religion, African religions that were brought over by the slaves that arrived in Brazil. So you see a lot of it, like you see some of these offerings right on the beach. And people respond to them. You walk around them. I mean, you don't dare step on them or go near them or touch them. So I felt like, wow, they're revered or they're afraid. They take this stuff seriously. You know, you don't screw with that stuff. So I felt like, wow, the voodoo and a lot of the uh, more eclectic religions are like everywhere. They're very prevalent. And I'd never seen that before. So that's kind of where the meshing of the stories came. Because I asked some questions and they were like, no, these are things created to care off evil spirits. You leave notes in there to, for your wish or wishes of things to happen to your enemies. I mean, there's a lot of that. You know, I didn't want to just feel like I patronized these kids just for a narrative, you know, like Ghost Rider or The Punisher or whatever. I felt like, you know, the religion over there plays a huge part in the culture in Rio. I was worried about how it was going to be perceived. I was using these kids for the sake of an American comic. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. No, not at all. Not from what I've read of it. And something else that you touch upon there and quite central to the story, the kids, uh, some of them are living in these favelas. Favela is a Brazilian word for, it's not a slum. You know, they, they get really angry if you call it a slum. The favela is a neighborhood in the offshoots of the central part of Rio de Janeiro. But it's basically like the favelas are the denser neighborhoods on the hills on the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro. Do you see any parallels between those and some of the poorer areas in the U.S., parallels in the societies that live there? Yeah, it's a culture within a culture in the favelas in Rio because of there's a lot of gangs. It's almost like the Wild West in a lot of these favelas where the gangs run the neighborhoods. They control the drugs. They even have their own police. You have to kind of check in. You have to get permission in some favelas to go in and to be seen. Like I said, it's like the Wild West. I mean, you've got a lot of guns, you've got a lot of violence, you've got a lot of money because of the drugs, and they're at war with the cops. They're at war with the local police. Um, Because the police in Brazil are like the military. They're from the military. They're not police that we think of here in the United States. So there's a lot of that, and that's what Chapter 2 was about. I wanted to kind of touch upon the confrontations that these kids have, these homeless kids have with the police. You did encounter one child that made a real impression on you. Tell me about that encounter that you had. Again, I didn't go there with this intention. I mean, I was as full of shit an American kid in his, in his 20s as you could get. When I saw these kids that were surviving off of their wits, they were surviving off of begging 
That's all they survived off of. They had no place to sleep. They had no place to eat. Anywhere they went, they were moved along. They were pushed on. And the locals want them eradicated. They want them eliminated. You know, so they hire these killing squads to literally eliminate them like pests or like rodents. But we were out in Copacabana one night and we went out the way you go out. And there's these slums. They're near the favelas and it's close to some of the slums, but it's working class neighborhoods. I mean, it's great nightlife, great people, great food. And yet there's a lot of kids out begging. There's a lot of kids out hustling. And we were out sitting and this one kid, he couldn't have been more than six years old, seven years old, was selling nuts, warm nuts that they put in these little kerosene containers. And he came up to us and he asked us, you know, did you want to buy? And then me being the American, I just handed him a wad of money and he just took out of the wad what the nuts would cost. And he threw the rest of it back at me. Like I offended him. And, you know, looking at this kid, looking in his eyes, he was covered in filth from the neck down. He was literally been sleeping in garbage and sleeping in filth. When you look in their eyes, it's almost like that thousand mile stare that a soldier has, you know, when he's in combat, because living on the street kind of hones your sensibilities. It hones your instincts and you could see it in their eyes. And I didn't expect that. I mean, it, it just tore into me when I saw this kid literally surviving in the streets. And so that was the kid that I carried with me. That was the kid that I couldn't get him out of my mind. And then when I knew that I wanted to do a comic, an indie book about Rio, I knew I had to at least include that as a short epilogue to kind of show you that this was my motivation. It wasn't, look, if you're doing indie, indie comics to make money, or you're going into indie comics for like, you're going to be discovered and James Cameron's going to call you. You forget about it. And if you do, God bless you to get your Netflix deal or whatever guys <laughs> we're going in indie comics for. I wish you a lot of luck, but it ain't going to happen. And so knowing that pick something personal, pick something that only, you know, pick something that you know better than anybody else in your life. And you're going to do it well because you're going to have that emotional leverage that you wouldn't have had if it was just another title that somebody threw at you, you know, of whatever, a guy in a cape. The title The Hostage, what is the significance, this gestalt that these kids' dreams come up with? It's weird. It's, it's a metaphor because when you walk around Rio during the daytime, these kids are sleeping everywhere. They're out and about at night because they hustle more at night and it's safer to sleep during the day than it is to sleep at night. You're preyed upon more at night. You could see what's coming during the day. You can't see it as much at night. So when you walk around Rio and you walk around certain neighborhoods, they're everywhere. There's thousands of them. They sleep kind of intertwined, almost braided to stay warm. And what they do because the sun is so bright is they put their shirts over their eyes. They tie their shirts over their eyes so they could sleep and shield their face from the sun. So they look like hostages. They look like they're being held hostage. They were kidnapped. So as you're walking around, you're like, wow, why are they all blindfolded? And you realize they're not. They sleep during the day in the broad daylight and the sun in Rio is very bright. So that's where the term the hostage came from. And in the book, is this a spirit of vengeance in some form? It's really up to the reader to decide if it's real or not. I always saw the hostage as more of a dream of these kids. Because as a kid, anytime you're picked on or anytime you're, you know, you get to fight at school and somebody beats your ass, whatever, you wish ill upon them. You wish this protecting guardian angel, so to speak, to come and avenge you or come and protect you. Well, that wasn't happening here. And I clearly didn't want to make it seem like I was going to solve 
everyone's problems. But the more I looked into some of the religions, there were spirits, there were religions, and there were icons that the tribes of the Amazon prayed to, to protect their children from predators. So I kind of saw it as an amalgam of that type of thing. And did you begin working on this, at least conceptually, making some drawings, thinking about it years ago? Yeah, I started in the 90s. I started in the early 90s. Uh, when I moved back to Chicago, I was working in advertising. And it's a great way to hone your skills as an artist, but it's a sweatshop when you work. I worked at Leo Burnett, and I worked at Burson Marsteller, and they get their pound of flesh out of you. So I worked on samples a lot, and I worked it up in black and white, and I still got a lot of them. And it just wasn't happening for me because if you wanted to do small press and to put a book out in those days, it was much more difficult than it is now. To start with, if you went to a printer, you couldn't print 100 copies. You couldn't print 500 copies. I mean, if you wanted to print full color, it cost you 30 grand, 40 grand to do a small book, and that'd be black and white. So it was just not feasible in those days. But I carried a lot of it with me. I did a lot of notes. I did a lot of story breakdowns of what he looked like and what the hostage looked like and what the character motivation was. But I wanted to get into mainstream comics. It just wasn't going to happen. They slammed the door in my face like every editor and every portfolio line. I stood in every one of those lines, man, at every con. Did they give you a reason? My work was too disturbing, was what one editor told me. Really? Oh, yeah. And the old expression, everything they say before bought is bullshit. That's kind of what happens when you're an artist. You know, they tell you how great it is and how innovative it is and how jarring it is, but we can't use it. If you're not willing to draw the house style, whatever the style is, whether it was Jim Lee or whether it was the time, whether it was Silvestri, whether it was Rob Liefeld, whoever it was. I mean, you look at my stuff. It's clearly not, you know, that. So I wanted to go in the front door, but it wasn't going to happen. So that's when I said, you know, and I tell this to every artist, if you want to get into comics, don't feel like Marvel and DC are your only options. I mean, you can put a book out yourself now. You can do 50 copies. You can do 100 copies. You can color it digitally. You can hire a letterer for, you know, a couple hundred bucks to letter your book. You can't always get Alex Ross to do the cover, but I sold my soul to the devil to help me. Working with Alex, that helped. But ask your friends to help. Ask people in the business to help. Because especially indie creators, it's doable. If you really, really want to put a comic out, it's doable. Now, getting out there and getting comic stores to buy it, you'll discover, is way more of a problem than actually creating the thing. Tell me about creating the book. Tell me about your art style and the incredible coloring that you use. Well, thank you. It goes back to... Once you decide you're going to do it yourself, and once you decide you don't have an editor to answer to, then I realized, okay, I should push it. I should really push it more and do more of what I wanted to do and how I felt it was going to not look like everything else. Because once I accepted the idea that my style was just not like everything else out there, and that's a blessing and a curse, I said, well, then I'm going to push it. And I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Bill Sienkiewicz a little bit because um, I rep him. And Bill, what I learned most from Bill was Bill always told me to push it. He always said, always try to surprise yourself. Always try to do more. Always try to do something and push the narrative in a direction that you don't necessarily see it going. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with the hostage. Because look, at the end of the day, it was my dime. I knew I was putting the book out myself. 
I didn't at the time think I was going to do Kickstarter. You know, that was pre-COVID. Once we got into the COVID world, I felt Kickstarter is perfect for an indie publisher. You can talk one-to-one with the comic fan, but he can look at it. He could take a look at some samples of the work, and you know in two seconds whether it's for you or not. I back a lot of projects on Kickstarter. I don't really want to watch the video as much as I'm like, just show me what the art looks like. If it looks cool, I'll support it. And that's what I wanted to do with the hostage. Well, you're doing something that also gives back to the people. You're not using anybody because this is going to be published digitally in English and Portuguese. I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I felt it was very important to do it in Portuguese because I know that there's a big comic market, a big comic fan base in Brazil. I don't know a lot about it. I haven't been to Brazil in a long time, but I see on the internet, there's a lot of Brazilian sites and a lot of Brazilian fans. And I hope that this can reach those guys. I hope that they can take a look at it and and not feel that I'm just using Brazil to just to say, yeah, I know I'll put it in Brazil. You know, I mean, that'd be a cool setting. That wasn't my intention. I fell in love with Brazil and I have a close kind of relationship in my mind because my trip to Brazil, my time in Brazil changed my life. I mean, it affected me profoundly. So I felt like it was almost like a love letter that I had to do this and I wanted to do this book. Will it reach the fans in Brazil? I don't know. I hope so. I would eventually love to publish it in Brazil. I haven't spoken with any publishers in Brazil. I don't know what the comics market is like in Brazil, but I would love to publish it over there. I mean, I would do it for free. Now, right now you're going to publish it through your label, Mercury Comics. Yeah, Mercury. And people ask me that a lot. They're like, well, who's Mercury? And it's like, well, it's really just me. They're like, well, who puts the books out and who's in charge? I'm like, there's really no they in charge. It's really just me. You know, I drew a logo up 10 years ago when I did Atomica, which was my first comic. And I just said, yeah, Mercury. Sounds cool. And since you've already met your funding goal, you have other levels to reach the stretch goals, which include stickers. One of them has an Alex Ross postcard. And then the granddaddy of them all is the slipcase cover. The original plan was to produce it as a graphic novel, soft cover. And then we reached our goal, the 25K. We instantly knew that now we could do it as a hardcover, a slipcase. So everybody who buys the book gets it as a hardcover slipcase. I'll be honest, I wasn't very well-versed in Kickstarter. This is my first Kickstarter program, but I was fortunate enough to pick the brain of a few people that done it. I talked to Frank over at Aspen Comics. He did a lot, and he was very helpful. Jimmy Palmiotti, I started to see what Jimmy did. Uh, Brian Polito, what he did with his stuff. And then also what Boom is doing with Keanu Reeves. Just kind of getting a template of what guys that are doing this really well are doing. You realize that you have to have these stretch goals. You have to have these perks and these reasons for people to support you because a lot of people have gotten burned with kickstarter in the last 10 years that's kind of a black eye for comics because order fulfillment is two-thirds of kickstarter if you support the book and you don't get order fulfillment they're not going to give you a second chance so i knew it was crucial to have the book finished before i went to kickstarter and not to wait until hey let's see what happens you know, if it gets back, then you go, okay, great. I got 60 pages left. And no, no. Summer comes and you're going, hey, what the hell happened? I didn't want to be one of those guys. I didn't want to make excuses. So I said, I'm not going to Kickstarter until this thing is finished because, you know, I've been working on it, on the hostage since the 90s, but really grinding on it heavily the last 10 years. I have family and you got to eat three times a day. And, you know, Top Ramen, you get, you get sick of Top Ramen, you get sick of Trail Mix. 
you know, and, and you, know, you can't do that shit anymore. You can't sleep on floors. Nope. You can do that when you're younger. When you get older, I can't do it anymore, man. You know, I can't, I, I can't eat like three day old pizza and apple fritters for dinner. I just can't. It was crucial to have order fulfillment and to do things right. And so that's why I, I approached Alex Ross and Jeff Darrow and Bill Sienkiewicz and Jeff Rialan Love. If you've never seen Jeff's work, it's terrific. And Eric Powell and some guys I knew who were nice enough to contribute, to help me get people take a look. It's only going to help you so far. You know, if you buy the book because you want to see Alex Ross print, I can live with that because I just want to do everything I can to get people to give it a shot, to take a look at it. And marketing is very important because, you know, the comic market, some people that are going to buy it and not read it, and some people are going to buy it because they're into indie books. Unfortunately, a lot of people in comics are not into indie titles. The brand loyalty in comics is a lot like cigarettes. You know, when you go into a comic store, you know who your Wolverine is, your Batman is. You know, you, you don't want my Batman. You want your Batman. So to give the hostage a shot, I knew I needed something other than just, you know, okay, guys, you know, this is what it is. This is what it's about. I really wanted the book to do really, really well so that I can have some validation to continue because I, I would love to do a second volume. That's kind of how I originally saw it. But I'm not crazy enough to say, yeah, sure. You know, if it's just not reaching an audience, this is the first time I've shown it to anybody, the samples on Kickstarter. It's been a week now. This is the first I've ever shown anybody. I mean, I showed my wife, but she thinks everything I draw is crazy anyway. So I didn't really know what the reaction was going to be. And so far, the reaction has been great. I'm over the moon at the reaction. And it ends on February 25th. And again, the stretch goals are terrific. We've got lithographs. Uh, lithograph package. I've got handmade original art that I do for you. I'm doing 11 by 17 private commissions. I mean, if you pick a character, I've done handmade painted watercolor postcards that come with versions of the book. There's a lithograph set, postcard set, there's bookmarks. Set. I'm again, this is all new areas for me, but I understand that this is uh, important to people to feel that you know, with the stretch goals, as the program continues on, you get more stuff as kind of a thank you for taking a chance on us. It's certainly worth taking a chance on, folks. Like I said, it's uh, funded and it's done. So there's really little risk. I mean, there's always some risk with Kickstarters, but, you know, Sal's reached out to people that know what they're doing who've done Kickstarter before. So he's not going into this unprepared. The good thing about Kickstarter now is that's the first thing they ask you is order fulfillment. You're ready to go at it with, well... This is where the motivation, they're like, yeah, that's great. Well, who's going to fulfill these orders? <laughs> yeah. Who's your guy? How, how is this going to be taken care of? What about the international guys? Where is the book being printed? When is the book being delivered? What are the shipping costs? You know, that's the reality of Kickstarter because Kickstarter is a lot like PayPal, other vendors now that people online don't want to get burned. And if they do, they're going to be real pissed about it and they're going to want a refund. So Kickstarter does not want to play policeman for you. So if you don't fill out everything and have your eyes you know, dotted and T's crossed, they're just going to say, no, I'm sorry. They don't just take anybody on because unfortunately, a lot of people who do Kickstarter, I don't think they've thought it through, that it's a lot of work. And let me tell you, if you want to do a Kickstarter, it's 10 times more work than you think it's going to be. It's a tremendous amount of work. But I don't mind because this is my baby. I'll do whatever I have to do to get this out and to get people to give it a shot. You know, that's why I appreciate, you know, you taking a Sunday 
and listening to my bullshit. I want to talk about one other thing that I saw that you worked on. And as hand to God, I got one comic this week. One. And it was Marvel 4. And lo and behold, whose work was in there but yours and Alex's? I'm a revolt in development. That's interesting because that's my first printed work in Marvel. Mm-hmm. And that and it has a Liefeld cover. So I was kind of like, Alex, you had to do a Liefeld cover for this, you know? <laughs> So, uh, I, no, I was I was kidding. Alex was putting together Marvel as an anthology of different short stories. He had a whole list of artists in mind. And he had kind of laid that story out for another artist. And the other artist was kind of him and hawing back and forth and back and forth. And then I happened to be showing him what I was working on with the hostage. I was finishing up the hostage. And he was looking at the samples and he goes, man, I really like the colors. And he's like, do you think you could do this thing in a Fantastic Four story? And I'm like, yeah, but Alex, Marvel wants nothing to do with me. And he's like, yeah, but maybe. So he showed it to them and they were fine with it. So I was kind of like Yoko. You know, I mean, I got in the door because Alex, (laughs) I have no delusions because I've met every one of those editors. And I could look at the reaction on their face when they see my work is always like they're looking at photos of a car wreck. You know, they're kind of like, huh? You know, you want to do what? So... Revolt development was like, okay, what was I going to say? No. I mean, it, it's like when they had, do you want to fight Apollo Creed? I was like, well, I know I'm going to get my ass kicked, but what else am I doing? You know, so I thought, sure. And it came out this month, the same month as the Kickstarter campaign, which is, I originally had planned the hostage to come out in October on Kickstarter, but with the election and with, everything that the world has been going through, I just thought it would be better to wait until after, you know, the holidays and after the election and after all the craziness that's going on in the world. But thank you. I thought it turned out great. It's a short story, seven, eight pages. Alex wrote it. I put my crazy spin on it with lots of markers and big pens. I used everything on that story. Yeah, I was looking through it, reading it, and I was paying really close attention to who was in some of the panels and just seeing Ben Grimm, or the thing, in class. I'm looking at some of the people, and uh, I swear I see Subby there. But uh, <laughs> it's just really Yeah, good. no, there are. That's, and one of them is Mole Man. Uh-huh. You look close to the yep. little guy with the glasses. Yep. the kid version of Mole Man, and that's Submariner. The others are just kids in a classroom kind of thing. I'll be honest with you. I wasn't sure Marvel, even when I finished it, I thought, I told Alex, I said, I don't think Marvel's going to let this fly. And they've never liked what I did. So I was really shocked that it actually saw print. I'm not kidding. When they sent me a copy a couple of weeks ago, I thought, wow, they actually printed this thing. Because, you know, I thought maybe they were humoring Alex. But hey, I worked hard on it. I'll tell you that. I put a lot of time in it. But I didn't think it was going to get printed. Well, it shows. And exactly. once again, coming back, you know, it's uh, involving kids, just like the hostage. Although this it's is a not more my style. Look at that story and then look at the hostage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there any gray area in there? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when people look at that, if, the, if people look at revolt development and they think that that's the way I want to do a story, uh, I, I did it that way because it, it was perfect for that story. Mm-hmm. And that's how Alex wanted it. And he was, he felt strongly about it. And I thought, Sure. Great. I mean, I can work with this. No problem. Not how I would have done it, but hey, then again, they don't want what I do. So, you know, sometimes you just say, sure, why not? I don't want to know what's in a hot dog. Just give me the hot dog. 
you think you'll get a shot at doing more work for Marvel? Not that you need to, but. Yeah, no, over the years, you know, listen, make no mistake. Over the years, I try, I really, I mean, look, I grew up a Marvel guy. I grew up a Kirby, John Buscema, Gene Colan, John Romita, Gil Kane, Hubert guy. It wasn't going to happen. But what I stole most from Kirby was that product should be a product of your imagination. Comics should come from your head. They need not be based on reality. When I read Kirby, and I hated Kirby when I first saw him as a kid because it was ugly. Then finally, I couldn't stop looking at it. Finally, New Gods was like, wow, this is what I want to do. And John Buscema, he drew everybody beautiful and, and like a Renaissance painter. And Gil Kane had you know, these amazing layouts. And I knew I could never be the draftsman that these guys were. So I just said, well, Kirby... If he drew a toaster, it was not based on reality. It was a linear kind of evoked how he felt a toaster should look. That was my approach to how I wanted to draw Captain America and how I wanted to draw. And Marvel was like, what are you, out of your mind? You know, <laughs> I, mean, it was, I mean, I went and I did up my samples and I did up and I stood in every line in every San Diego and every New York Comic Con. And I got to a point where I was getting in fistfights with editors you're showing your work to guys that have never drawn anything they're criticizing you now constructive criticism is fine but some of these guys they didn't know what they were talking about and and, but at some point you have to listen that hey they're not hiring you you have to come to the reality that it's not happening you can't keep running east looking for a sunset it's just not gonna happen (laughs) it's not happening well you did it you did publish with them now so the door's open right go figure who would have thought? Well, I have some fun questions to ask all my guests. There's nine of them. What you like to do for recreation? I got to be honest. I draw a lot, but it's just really just my own stuff in my notebooks and in watercolor. I do that. I love, you know, I got two little kids. So right now I'm just enjoying spending time with my kids and family. You know, that's really my thing is spending time with my family. I used to be an athlete, but that was years ago, man. And I'm too old now to do any of that stuff. Uh, I get it. Things hurt now. <laughs> yeah. Now you hurt yourself sleeping. You know, that's my favorite thing. Is, you know, you hurt do. yourself doing nothing. It used to be when your knee hurt, you'd go, what did you do? And it's like, now it's like nothing. You know, stuff just hurts for no reason. You know, I was shoveling snow today and I hurt myself shoveling snow, you know, and nobody hit me. You know. How do you survive out there? I mean, Chicago, cold. I mean, ugh. I don't know how you do it. How do you cope? Who said you cope, man? You just, you just, <laughs> it sucks. I've lived here my whole life and probably in the next five years. If I told my wife, I said, if I drop dead, it's not going to be from shoveling snow. So I don't see myself staying there forever. But, you know, mm-hmm. I lived in California for a while when I was in school and I liked California. I didn't like L.A., but I liked California a lot. The elements and the darkness the, in the wintertime when you, it gets dark at like two o'clock, that sucks. And that's this time of year. Oh, yeah. Out here, I mean, we don't get much snow. We actually had snow Where are you now? Where are you located? I'm in Las Vegas. Oh, God, I love Vegas. I mean, I'm one of those guys that I've gone to Vegas a couple of times uh, in the last 10 years. I used to think, how the hell can anybody live in Vegas? And now I'm one of those old guys (laughs) who's like, I can live out here. No, I like the desert. Really? I really do. Yeah, no, I do. My brother just moved to Arizona where he complains it's 115. He said, you can't go outside. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, you knew that when you moved there. But... (laughs) I, li- I like the desert. I really fell in love with Vegas, not the Strip. I mean, I'm one of those crazy parents that takes his kids to Vegas. You know, I took them to see Cirque. I took them to see Love. I took them to see, you know, Michael Jackson. And they loved it, man. 
We had a good time. Oh, that's exactly what we did. Yeah. We used to live on the East Coast in Delaware, and then we moved out here. And we liked not so much the Strip. I mean, it's great, but everything off the Strip, we're like out in the suburbs. Well, it's changed a lot, right? In the last 10 years, living in Vegas, I mean, wasn't there like a surge, and then that surge is over now it's kind of leveled off because I know it was really crazy, the building there about 10 years ago. It's still booming. We still have, I mean, this is crazy. During a pandemic, we still have building booming. It's big and bigger than ever. We have a lot of people coming here from California. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. They say a lot of people, like, same with Illinois, a lot of people leaving Illinois like yes. crazy. I see a lot of people from uh, Chicago out here. Where are you from, Chicago? Where yeah. are you from, California? Where are you from? Oh, uh, most people, yeah. Anything over 40 degrees, I can live there. Trust me. I mean, and when I was out in Vegas, I told my wife, I'm like, I can live out here. And she's like, really? I go, yeah, it's the desert. I like the desert. There's no leaves to rake. There's no snow to shovel. I mean, we saw snow this week, but it was pretty and it was gone by noon. You look in the mountains, you can right. see the snow, right. but you don't have to deal with the snow. The only thing about Vegas that's confusing to me is it seems like there's two cities. There's Vegas that you think of Vegas, which mm -hmm. is the Strip. Yep. And that's only like a small part of it. When you look at the volume of people that live in Las Vegas that have nothing to do with the Strip, most people, that's what they think of, slot machines. Right. They don't realize there's a tremendous community out there. A lot of people live out there that have nothing to do with the Strip. That's true. People don't, why are you moving to Vegas? I said, well, you don't know. We go out to the mountains. We go hiking. We go to the old part of the Strip, like old Fremont Street, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and now you've got the Raiders. You got Golden Knights. Yep. I mean, it's like you've got a real city now. It's not just, you know, a boomtown based off of gambling. Right. You've right. got the, some of the best restaurants in the world. I mean, you've got everything out there now. Yeah, it's awesome. Can't complain. Yeah. Next question. Your favorite birthday. What was it and why? I would say probably when I was 11 because my ma, she gave me like six bucks and I could go buy comics. Mm-hmm. And six bucks was a lot of money in those days. And especially when comics were 20 cents. So you could get like a lot of comics. Uh, for some reason, I just remember my 11th birthday. And it was a great year for comics. It was a great time for comics. It was right around the time you know, the death of Gwen Stacy mm -hmm. and uh, Fantastic Four and Cap and Kirby was still there. And I don't know. I remember my 11th birthday just gloating in the idea that I had a stack of comics that was like, an, you know, an inch thick. You know, and I, and I ran to my room and I was just like, you know, I wanted to roll around in them. That's the age for me, too. I, I got the $1 allowance and I could get four books yeah. for 25 cents. And it was just when Kirby was coming back to Marvel. Right, right. When I discovered what he was doing at DC with the demon mm -hmm. and with new gods and Commandy, at the top of my head came off. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just like, wow, this guy's from another planet. So when you were growing up uh, in your bedroom on the wall, when you were in junior high, pictures and posters, what did you have on there? Was it a lot of Kirby posters? I had the, uh, the black light posters. Oh, yeah. I had the Captain America... The horizontal orange Captain America one. I bought it on eBay about 10 years ago and then framed it and have it in my office now still. And nice. I had the uh, Gene Cole and Iron Man where he's pushing the walls apart, mm -hmm. black light poster, and probably, you know, Farrah Fawcett. You know, <laughs> right. I, mean, yep. I started to, <laughs> you start going in that direction a little bit. Probably for a faucet. The Marvel black light posters were huge because I had a lot of older brothers and they were all into black light stuff. A lot of drugs in the 60s. So if you have black light posters, they were cool. And some of them had fuzz even. I still have one poster hanging in my house. That's frowned upon by the master of the house, the missus. 
So I have a little hiding space under the steps where I keep my comics. Also, right. oddly enough, a meditation area for me. So I have an Alex Ross Doctor Strange poster right in front of the cushion where Doctor Strange is meditating and his spirit's leaving his body, his astral form. Right, right. <laughs> it's the Ditko Doctor Strange, yeah. I said, that's the place to put yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's great you meditate. I started meditating about five, ten years ago off of an app. Oh. And I got the little app. Mm-hmm. And man, it helps. It helps a lot. It does, you know, especially with stress. And you got kids. And Absolutely. You got stress. And, yep. And anybody who's not into it, I can't recommend it enough. Hey, it's cheap. It doesn't cost anything. Right. <laughs> Just a place to hide. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you had one book to read just for pleasure, this isn't about survival. What would be that book? It could be a book. It can be a comic book. It can be a series of books or comics that are all related. What would that be? That's a tough one. I find myself always coming back to Watchmen. I find myself always coming back to Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. I find myself always coming back to, even though those weren't books that were pivotal when I was a kid and I really, really got into comics. The thing about Watchmen is it kind of reminds me you know, how ambitious you can be with something that's a comic. You know, it's only here in this country that we got. Unfortunately, most of what we got is people that think comics are for kids or there's something wrong with you or when are you going to grow out of it? Or now worse, because of the movies, everybody thinks that you're doing a comic because you're trying to option it for Hollywood or, you know, everything in comics is successful. And it's not. I wish the movie stuff would trickle down into printed comics, but it's not. So I would say I wind up pulling one of those up again a lot just to kind of remind myself that, you know, this is our thing and that this is important and that comics are not you know, just for kids or there's something wrong with you or, you know, the whole geek mentality that society puts on it. You know, I don't apologize for this stuff. And even though my parents are still waiting for me to grow up, my mother, when are you going to stop that stuff and get a real job? You know, I'm like, mom, I'm not 12. (laughs) I think I'm pretty well cooked at this point. I'm not going anywhere. Now, when you're relaxing, Sal, what is your beverage of choice? Uh, Pellegrino. Well, coffee too, but Pellegrino is kind of a way of staying away from uh you know the sweets and as you get older they're always on you to drink more water and so yeah i I buy the small bottles so it's always coffee i wind up drinking four or five cups a day of coffee and pellegrino now i know you're trying to take care of yourself we all do as we get older but do you have it doesn't have to be food do you have a guilty pleasure oh yeah cigars ah yeah when you got kids, man, especially in the Midwest, if you drive down the alley by my house on any summer afternoon, especially during COVID, you'll see this old guy sitting in a chair, in a lawn chair, smoking a cigar, and that's usually me. I go out and I shut the inside door so that you can't get in the garage, and then the outside door is facing the alley. So that way, if my kids are trying to, you know, I don't want them to see me smoking because, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite and tell them not to smoke, and then I'm smoking. I try to keep it to a minimum, but... Sometimes things are more stressful than others, if you know what I mean. So going out in the garage and smoking a cigar, uh, even sometimes if it's just 20 minutes worth, you know, it's not the whole cigar. It's almost like we were talking about with meditating. It's kind of that breathing, that slowing of things and allowing you to kind of get that stress out. So, yeah, martinis and cigars. Nice. Are my two. Yeah, I had one yesterday and it's like kerosene, but hey. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you got you got to whip the horse in the eye every once in a while to you know and get him moving. I you know? hear you. Yeah, took cigars. 
Cigars. And the doctors will tell you, my God, those things are terrible for you. But, you know, hey, everything in moderation. Very true. One thing, um, we're both trying to relax, stay calm, and have our little breaks. But do you have a pet peeve? Like, for example, now that I have kids, I can never finish a sentence. Because I'll say, talking to my wife, you know, I said, she'll be like, stop, stop, don't run out in the street. And then right, right. it's not, now what were you saying? It just dies there. <laughs> and I just shake my head like <laughs> Is listening to me. Do you have a pet peeve? Mine is probably like you're just not relevant anymore. Ooh. You know, you come in the house and they don't see you. You know, <laughs> nobody even says hi anymore. You mm. come in and you're, or your wife asks your opinion on things that you know she's already done it anyway, but they kind of coddle you like you're a child. She'll say, Hey, what do you think about? And then you tell her, and she's like, Okay, good, because I already bought the other one. And you're <laughs> like, Well, just... then why did you ask me? You know, I find myself walking in and like when you're married, you learn the greatest lesson you learn when you're married is knowing when to not say something because you got to pick your battles. You know, if you walk in a room and you say every time something annoys you, you bring it up, you're, you're going to be walking around a mess. You're going to be fighting all the time. So you got to know when like, nah, that's not worth getting pissed about. You know, I know I know I got friends of mine that they're newlyweds and they fight over everything. And I go, you'll get to the point where you just get tired of fighting. You know, like, I don't have the energy to fight. So unless it's something like, you know, you, you took my back issues of Devil Dinosaur and like, you know, used them to prop something up. I don't, I usually don't say anything. You know, it, it, you alleviate stress that way. I always step in it by opening my mouth. And not to say that you shouldn't, if something's bothering you, you shouldn't talk about it. You definitely should. But mm -hmm. as you get older, you learn that the one who pays for it most is you. Yeah. Because when you get mad and you get angry, all it does is you're the one that winds up with the chest pains. You're the one that winds up talking to yourself and walking around and angry and with that adrenaline, you know. So at the end of the day, you've got to do what's best for you because I have no delusions. If I have a stroke, they'll let me lie here in my own shit before they come <laughs> and take care of me. So I don't want to be that guy who's drooling. You know, hey, put Sal in, in the garage. Company's coming over. You know, I don't want to be that guy. So yeah. I, I pick my battles, man. You know, I learned to just go, oh, yeah. yeah I, I throw a lot of oh, yeahs around. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> or wow. You know, when I was a bartender, we had expressions. You have like four or five static expressions because I was a bartender for like 12 years. And uh -huh. you have to deal with a lot of idiots. They're either racist or they're drunks or they're, you know, whatever. And you find you have a lot of expressions to deal with those guys. One of them is just, man, that's fucked up. You know, you say that right. and it, it kind of covers everything. Yeah. The other one is, hey, you got to do what you got to do. You know, you throw that. And you, I didn't even hear what you said. And that apply. That'll work when I go, you got to do what you got to do. Or you throw out, hey, takes all kinds, you know. And now I'm, I'm covered. And I throw those three out a lot in my house because they, they don't listen to me anyway. You know, especially my kids. They don't even know what I do for a living. The other thing is, yeah, I love when they get art projects now and nobody asks me anything. I mean, nothing. My daughter has art projects. I'll go, what's the problem? She's like, well, she's got an art project she can't figure out and we're trying to work on And I'm sitting there going, hello, is anybody going to? My wife's like, no, we got it. We're good. So I'm, I'm like Oppenheimer, you know, and my kid has a science project and they don't ask him, you know, you know, so you're just like, okay. I'm less relevant now than I was five minutes ago, which is, you know, and it just gets worse every day. That's my story. <laughs> my next question, finish this phrase. I took a risk when I invested in the internet. 
Mm. When I started working with Alex, we were friends and he started, he needed someone to kind of help him at the time, rapping and doing different things. And I said, no, because I wanted to pursue my art. But then, you know, I also was having a hard time making ends meet. So I said, hey, Alex, if we do this, we should really do it on the internet. We should build a website and we should blah, blah, blah. And at the time, it was brand spanking new. Mm -hmm. Alex didn't want to do it. He said it was a bad idea. And I said, no. And so I literally owed the entire creation of Alex Ross art to like, I took a chance on the internet, like back in late nineties, this was probably 96, 97. And then I started full-time right around 2000 Y2K. But yeah, it was the internet. And I look back and go, man, cause you remember the early internet? I mean, AOL. And I certainly do. It was like a toy. You didn't know it was going to be the, the whole world. There were no cell phones in those days. So, or very little cell phones, they weren't smartphones. So, you know, there was no social media and there was none of that stuff. And so I took a chance because I was coming out of advertising and I knew it was important to get the word out. Is there anything else you want to get the word out about besides the hostage? No, I just, the hostage, I got to warn people, it's not like anything you've seen before. And it's not hawk and dove. It's not, you know, it's not wild storm or wildcats, you know, whenever I saw wildcats the other day, it's not wildcats, you know, it's not, what was that book that Liefeld put out? I can't remember the name of it, you know, we had bedrock or it was his thing or whatever. It's not brigade that. or something like that? It's brigade. Yeah, brigade. There you go. It's not that. Okay. But I guarantee you it's a labor of love. There's a lot of blood and sweat and tears in the hostage. So anybody... Go to the Kickstarter page. Take a look. I got lots of sample pages there. Take a look at it. And I appreciate anybody giving it a shot. Just go to Kickstarter and type in the hostage. And this will be in the show notes too. Sal, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm jealous of the warm weather you got in Vegas. Okay, folks. First thing I want to clear up. I want to apologize. I had that wrong. Bedrock was in Youngblood, not in Brigade. I don't know why I thought Brigade. I don't think I ever read Brigade, but I know I read Youngblood at least for a couple of issues. Sorry, it wasn't quite my bag. I didn't read a whole lot of Image Comics back then. I think most of it was like Spawn. I read several issues of that. A little bit of Youngblood, uh, a little bit of Cyberforce, a little bit of everything. I was mostly a Marvel guy. I started reading more DC when Zero Hour came up. And I was reading a lot of Valiant comics and continuity comics. Not so much Image. Of course, I read a lot more of those books now. But Image has changed a lot since then. But just again, to reiterate, Sal's Kickstarter, The Hostage, ends on February 25th. And it's being published through Mercury Comics. And that's Sal. Now, coming up next, a special podcast on President's Day. Another interview I'm so excited to bring you. Lawrence Luckinbill, actor playwright, and now author of a graphic novel, Teddy, the story of Teddy Roosevelt. We are going to talk about Teddy Roosevelt. We're going to talk about Lawrence's portrayal of Teddy Roosevelt in Lawrence's one-man play, Teddy Now. Also, his one-man plays of Clarence Darrow and of President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And of course, we're going to speak about one of his most famous roles as Cybok, the half-brother of Spock that he portrayed in the motion picture Star Trek V and why the film was so maligned and where and why the film fell short and the cause has a tie-in to superheroes. Plus, Lawrence also has advice on how to keep a happy marriage. So that's coming up on President's Day and I already have more interviews in the queue and more in the works. 
to reach me, send your email to creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. That's all for this week. Take care of yourselves. For Creator Talks, I have been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.